A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Gare out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little, it is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geberer. Welcome, everyone, to Jewish History Soundbites. This is Yehudi Geber with another episode of Jewish History Soundbites and our Mighty Shabbos Malava Malka episode this time is going to be about uh, Stalin, Karlin Stalin, and its transfer to the United States and the uh, unique leaders that it had. Um, first, the Detroit Staliner Rebbe, and later on his brother who survived the war, Rabbi Yechanan, the Karlina Rebbe, who's the grandfather of the current one. Before that, I just wanted to point out from a previous um, recent episode, um, we spoke about Rabbi Shasalavechik a little bit, and I mentioned that what I thought was Rabbi Bernard Lander was the the uh, last one to have smicha from, um, from Rabbi Shasalavechik, and to... Uh, two others apparently were found by our very knowledgeable uh, listeners. A few, a few of them actually sent it to me. It was more than one. Um, but Rabbi Yosef Weiss of Yeshiva University, and also there was a, a very prestigious rabbi in Manhattan, Rabbi Sidney Kleiman, who was a very long-standing, long rabbinical career, about seventy-five years long. Um, also. Both of them had smicha for Rabbi Shalvechik, and both of them outlived Rabbi Lander. So there you have another two rabbis who, just until recently, were around with us, who still had uh, smicha from Rabbi Shalvechik. But you know, it's been a lot of a lot of litvaks lately with Rabbi Shalvechik. We just started a new ep- a series on Velazhin, and it's really a little bit too much. And we need some Yiddishkeit, so let's talk Hasidus. Let's uh, let's get back to the to the, to to some Hasidus. We'll talk about Stalin, about Karlin, but Karlin's the perfect transfer because they're a Hasidus that was in Lithuania and was in Lita. You know, Karlin and Stalin are both the suburbs of the larger city of Pinsk, which was why today you have Karlin Stalin and you have Pinsk Karlin. And that's not why, it's the reason why is because of a long, long and somewhat not, you know, not not sweet dispute that took place uh, in the 1960s, 70s, 80s. That's a different story, though. Either way, so, but to connect it, I'll start with a story 
that I heard from a a uh, Talmud of Rav Ruderman in Baltimore, who heard it from Rav Ruderman. When Rav Ruderman was in Slabatka, he got close with the Kovnerov, Rav Ramdav Ber Kahana Shapiro. So you have this Slabatka student who used to take walks sometimes with the Kovnerov, two big Litvaks. And in Kovna, which was a very Litvish, a very Lithuanian, non-Hasidic city, um, there was only one Hasidic Yeshul. By the way, it's a building that still exists. When we go to, when we go to Kovna, uh, we point it out. We point out this is the building where that story took took place, and um, pointed out there. So there were a few Hasidic Yeshuls in Vilna. There was Chabad. There was Karlin. There was others. But in Kovna, which is further deeper into Lita, it's by almost by Jamut, and they there was only one Chassidish Shul, which was a Karliner Shul, and it was the middle of the morning, and the Kovna Rav was going on his walk, and he's accompanied by the young Rabbi Yaakov like Ruderman, and they hear them davening in mid morning, and as the Karlina Chassidim are wont to do, they're screaming. And that's a characteristic, a very, very famous characteristic of the Karlina Hasidim is that they scream the entire davening. I used to I daven for a couple, when I was a bacher in the mirror, I used to daven very often um, for several years, uh, Friday night and other times by the Karlin Shul, not far from the Mir Yeshiva, just two blocks up. And the whole thing was screaming. You know, we always associate singing with Hasidim, and Karlin has beautiful songs. And if you go to the Simchas Pesach Sheva and Sukkot, loads of fast and slow and all kinds of songs and Shabbos songs and uh, Rebbes were famous for writing songs, composing and very, very musical chassidus and, and actually the Rebbes also played music. Most of the Karlina Rebbes played the violin. Um, but but by happens by Friday night davening they, they just scream the entire davening. They scream l'chadaydi they, I used to eat very often. You go to Karlin till today, and they invite the yeshiva guys over Friday night. If anyone who's who's there, you go. If you don't have a meal, you go there. That's what I did all the time when I was a bacher. And that after davening, someone comes over to you, and they say, Hosta suda? Do you have a suda? And I say, no, I'm kind of waiting for one. And they arrange it for you. One of the people takes you home, and they... And uh, and then they scream Shalom Aleichem and they scream Kiddush and they're just screaming and screaming and screaming. So back to our story, Rav Ruderman turns to the Kovner of and says to him, Why are they screaming? And here's a typical Misnagdic response. The Kovner of says to him, it's after the Zman. They're, you know, it's after the Zman Kriyashma, the Zman Tfilah, they're not allowed to daven now. So the gates of heaven are closed after the Zman. So they're screaming to open up the gates, open it up, let us, let our tefillahs in. That's why they have to scream, because they're coming after it's too late, after the Zman. So that's, uh, that's Karlin. And that's, and that's where they were in the world. You know, when we go on our trips to, to Belarus, and it's mainly, again, a Litvisha trip, you're going to Valozhin, you're going to Mir, you're going to Radn. Also, if we end up going south, we go to Slonim, which is also Chesidus there in that area, and also to Pinsk, which is Pinsk, Karlin, Stone, it's all the same area. So, in fact, it's interesting, because of that, they were actually, together with Chabad, they were at the forefront of the the battle lines of the Misnagdim and Hasidim uh, battles. It was mainly fought in the area of Lita, near Vilna, 
um, also in Galicia and Brad and other places. But um, but um, the Karliners were the, and they're also one of the oldest dynasties. They're there from the beginning. They're there. Rabbi Aaron Hagadol of Karlin was a student of the Magid of Mizrich, and he started the court in Karlin already in his Rebbe's lifetime. So you're talking about it, one of the oldest, if not the oldest, uh, longest-lasting dynasty in Hasidus. So they're around, and they were there during the during they were they're at the battlefield uh, during that long uh, dispute with the Misnagdim. So much so that in some of the cherims and some of the letters that the Misnagdim wrote, and in some of the records of the Russian government, and in some of the official records, Hasidim are actually called Karliners. The Misnagdim called them Karliners, and the Russians called them Karliners. In other words, it came to be signify the whole movement. So it's an interesting uh, idea. Also, but let's jump ahead. This is not a history of of Karlin. This episode, we're going to try to focus on. The American aspect, uh, by the way, there a fantastic book came out recently about the history of of Carleen, uh, very comprehensive, very well done. Professor Benny Brown um, uh, wrote it. It's probably, again, to the best of my knowledge, the first academic book written in history that the Rebbe of the Hasidus sat down willingly with the researcher and helped him with the research and shared with him and was interviewed by him and saw the book and approved of it. Uh, very interesting. And uh, also testimony to, to who a guy like Benny Brown is. And uh, and it's really a great, great, great work. Kisfina Mitaltelet. It's the history of, of the Kalina Hasidus. Either way, so we jump ahead till the generation before the war. And and um, the one the one, really what they're... With the Carlene before the war was a very vibrant Hasidus that basically almost didn't survive the war. Um, the main Rebbe, Carlina Rebbe before the war, was Rabbi Romeli Melech Perlau, who was who had many Hasidim. He also had a Hasidish Yeshiva in Lunitz. He was the employer of Rav Shach. Rav Shach was the Rosh Yeshiva in the Hasidish Yeshiva of Stalin. And Rav Romeli Melech Perlau, the Rebbe, was the one who hired Rav Shach to be the Rosh Hashiva there for a period of time, and and um, the the Karlin always had a strong presence in Israel in Eretz Yisrael. In fact, um, my personal uh, family Yichus on one side um, were connected to Karlin in 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 Eretz Yisrael in Yerushalayim. My my family originally uh, was affiliated with Karlin. In Yerushalayim, already in Europe, near Karlin, but uh, also when they came to Yerushalayim, and then they left and went to America, you know, about a hundred years ago. But they were affiliated with with Karlin, so I have a personal connection there as well. But in any event, the Karliners were one of the earliest Hasidic communities in Eretz Yisrael. If you think about it, it's fascinating. Just uh, again, I'm digressing. I'm sorry, but they're one of the oldest dynasties, meaning they're one of the first dynasties in Europe one of the first founded official dynasties in Europe, in the lifetime of the Magdim is rich. They're one of the first official Hasidic communities in Eretz Yisrael. And as we'll see soon, they're one of the first established um, Hasidic courts in America. So they, they really plant themselves uh, first everywhere, which is uh, an interesting uh, to, to note. So Rav Ramali Melech visits uh, Eretz Yisrael four times in the interwar period, to the his Hasidim, to his large community in Yerushalayim, in Tveria, 
And he's there in 1939 when the war breaks out. And there's a lot of stories, or there's a few stories of of big people who were outside of Europe when right before the war, when the war breaks out, some of them were able to escape because of that. Some of them went back. You know, they talk about Rabbi Chana Wasserman who went back to his Talmudim. He went back, it was almost a year before the war. It wasn't exactly during the war. I still give him a lot of credit, and it's great, and he became a martyr, and he got killed, and he still wanted to go back, even though the clouds of war were gathering over Europe, but it was quite a bit of time before the war actually broke out. And many others who were outside of Europe when the war broke out and they chose to stay outside also. It makes sense and it's understandable. Um, but here we have a very unique case. He's there when the war breaks out. His Hasidim say, war is, bra- is, is has started, don't go. And he says, no, I'm actually specifically going to go back now. He got on the last boat out. And usually when you're talking about the last boat out, it's to get out of the place where there's war. He gets on the last boat out that goes back to Poland. And he comes to Poland and it's already a battlefield. And he makes it back to his town in order to get to be there. And he gets killed together with all his Hasidim. And that's pretty much the end of Karolina Hasidus. Um, and most of the Hasidim in Karlin were killed. And if we take a step back, um, we, we have this, we have, um, we have the Yanuka of Stalin, the uh, Rabbi Stroll Perlau, who's called the Yanuka, the young one, because he became a Rebbe when he was very, very young, when he was a child. Yanuka meaning a child, and a lot of Misnagdim, a lot of, even Hasidim were against it. You're making a child a Rebbe, you're making a joke out of the whole Hasidus. But it was a thing that Stalin believed, and it came again a couple of generations later, and a couple of generations before that. He wasn't the only one. It happened actually a few times in its history. Um, so the Yanuka of Stalin, as he was known, he was the Rebbe in, uh, of Karlin, of Stalin. And he was a bit more open than a lot of other Rebbes at the time. Like I said, he played the violin, um, in the in the in the court, uh, there's there's like a, um, a story about one of the, I'm not sure which which descendant of Carlene, but one of the descendants of the Carlene court. I don't remember which branch, but left left uh, left Hasidus, I'm not left the traditional life altogether, and and the Carlene Rebbe blamed the violin. He said it's because uh, this was a this was a musical instrument that was used for holiness and now it has been used for profanity because it was an entrance into the world of culture and music and therefore it shall never be played again. Um, and so in that branch, I guess it wasn't played again, but the Carolina Rebbe's did play the violin. Um, he also was not totally opposed to immigration to the United States at a time when almost every Hasidic Rebbe and Rosh Yeshiva and big rabbinic leader in in Eastern Europe, not all of them, but many of them were anti-immigration uh, to the United States. Um, it's 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 a tray for Medina. It's all materialism, and everyone's mechal Shabbos, and all kinds of legends were coming back to Europe about how people who stopped keeping Shabbos and putting on tefillin as soon as they got off the boat at Ellis Island. And here, the Yanuk of Stone says. America is a solution, and it's it's okay, and it's a rough life here. And if people need to leave, then under certain conditions they should be able to leave. And so he's not against immigration to the West. And what the ironic thing about it is that when he died at quite a young age, when 1921, 
um, when he was vacationing in Frankfurt, in Germany, they buried him in Frankfurt. Well, they buried him not in Karlin, not in Eastern Europe, not in the place of Hasidus. You, know, you don't expect to go to a Rebbe's cover when you're in Western Europe. And when we go to our tours in Germany, we end up in Frankfurt, and we have a little surprise for the guys. We're not just going to Rav Shamshon or Fall Hirsch's cover, because right down the row from Rav Shamshon or Fall Hirsch, in the same cemetery, is the Anuka of Stalin, a Chassidish Rebbe, which is quite unique. And um, and so, like I said, it's ironic that he ends up get himself getting buried in Western Europe. Um, so that is a tradition in, in Karlin. By the way, it's till today. Um, just as an example, the idea of, of the smartphones, uh, which was a big issue um, till uh, recently and or even now, and many rabbis spoke out against it, and there was all kinds of gatherings about having a smartphone, not having a smartphone. You need it for your job. You don't need it for your job. And really, the one who was bravely against the whole the whole trend, the first one to come out publicly and say it's okay to have a smartphone because the internet is here to stay and people are going to need it for work, was the Carlina Rebbe, the current one, the one who's alive today. And he had one of his... Uh, um, lieutenants write a like 15 or 20 page lengthy explanation of why it should be allowed and under what parameters and and a whole you know and people were upset about him at first so but that is a somewhat of a tradition in Carlene. so there are there's some of the first Hasidim to settle down in the United States are Carlene, um and and uh, and uh, it's because of the Anuka not being not being opposed to it. So when the Nuka dies in Frankfurt, he has six sons. Two of them don't become rabbis, but four of them do. Uh, mostly three of them in, in Eastern Europe in the area of, of Karlin. One of them, Yaakov Chaim, known to history as the Detroiter, he becomes to the United States. Why does he come? In 1924, just a couple of years after his father dies. There are rabbis who had made it to the United States beforehand. Um, there are a few. But he's one of the first ones. But what's more important is is that is that he's as far as I know, and it could be that it could be that I missed one or two other ones. But as far as I know, he's the first rebbe of a major, famous dynasty in Europe, who doesn't just move to America. He's invited by the, his Hasidim who live in America of that dynasty to serve as their rebbe. In other words, there had been other rebbes who had moved to America before, but they had not been invited by that specific dynasty. They're not invited by that by their Hasidim, and they definitely were not part of a major dynasty. So this is a really unique turning point in the history of American Hasidus. He builds up the Hasidus in America. He is a very he would visit them, which is how he ends up dying in Detroit. He actually lived in Williamsburg. But he had a group of Hasidim in Detroit. He had a group of Hasidim in Chicago. He had a group of Hasidim in other cities. And he would go visit them. He would spend Shabbos. He would visit. He would go around. He was a very fatherly figure to his Hasidim. He was, to a certain extent, in the 1920s, it was a completely unheard of concept. He was a Kirov pioneer. He would try to bring close the ones who had already left Yiddishkeit and try to bring them back and try to make them into Hasidim and try to to show them the warmth of a real Rebbe living with them out there in the in the in the uh, far away from Eastern Europe, and he's there, he's there for them, living in the trenches, so to speak. He, in the tradition of Karlin, was a chazan. He would lead the Kehillah in Williamsburg. He was a composer of songs, and he was um, a very, a very 
a prominent leader in the early in the early Hasidus of New York, especially for the Kalina Hasidim, across America, like I said, in Detroit, and that's why he's uh, he's buried there. He died. His father ends up dying in Frankfurt, not visiting Hasidim, but because he was vacationing there, and he ends up dying in Detroit. So neither of them were buried in the place where they had uh, spent their career. Now, he dies in, in 1946, right after the war. He didn't have any children. There's no continuity. What happened to his five brothers? Four of them are killed by the Nazis, along with basically all of the Hasidim. One brother, Rebbeichen on Perlau, who had been the Karlina Rebbe in Lutsk before the war, ran away with his wife and two daughters into uh, Russia, ends up in Siberia. One of his, wife, his, one of his daughters excuse me, and his wife died there. And he's a broken man at the end of the war with no Hasidim. His family wiped out. Um, and he ends up in one of the displaced persons camps. And it's interesting, in um, Meyer Birnbaum, the famous Lieutenant Birnbaum, when he was working with survivors in Feldefang in the uh, in the DP camps, he he um, met this survivor named Perlau, and he was very very quiet, very subdued. He didn't tell anyone who he was, and and someone in America when he was when Birnbaum was reporting back who he had met in the camp in the DP camp, he said, "Oh, maybe he's related to the Stalner Rebbe. Maybe someone from the Stalner Rebbe's family is still alive." So he asked him, "Are you related to the Stalner Rebbe?" So he said, no, I'm not related to the Stalner Rebbe. And at one point he asked Birnbaum for if, he, if there's a violin, if they can get a violin, he wanted to play. And then someone in America, when he told that to someone in America, someone said, hey, uh, someone remembered that this, the Karlina Rebbe, the Stalner Rebbe played violin. Why don't you ask him straight up, are you the Stalner Rebbe? And he said, are you the Stalner Rebbe? And he, you know, he, he said, yeah. And uh, he was someone who wanted, again, after the war, to, to a certain extent, uh, play a lower profile and keep a low profile, quiet, modest, and didn't want to make a big issue out of it, didn't want to get preferential treatment in the DP camp because he's a rabbi, and uh, he had been revealed. Um, he gets to Israel, where most of the Hasidim are, and he finds out that his brother, his only surviving brother, had died in America, buried in Detroit. A year later, he moves to America. So he leaves the only place where there's a major Karlin Hasidic presence was in Israel at the time. He leaves and he goes to America and he takes over his brother's Stiebel in Williamsburg and he takes over the Hasidim in America and also interacting at the same time with the ones in Israel where he had been for two years till 1947. And he, and he, um, and he's the only one left. That's it. That's that's the end of Carlene. He's the one from all those brothers. Even the one who's in America died young, without children, and there's really no seemed to be no continu- continuity. His sons, who he remarried, he had a couple of kids, didn't didn't weren't uh, the Rebbe material, and it was up to his daughter's child. His daughter had married a fellow named Mr. Ezra Shochet, and it was up to that child, who's today the current rabbi, to rebuild the Karlina Hasidus, because a couple of years later, the Rabbi Yechanan Perlau, that Karlina rabbi died also, and um, in 1955, and and the question was, what would be with the Hasidus? So some of the Hasidim went to Lelov, a lot of them, and Lelov and Karlina have an old, old history. There's a story, Rabbi Lazar Mendel of Lelov moved together with his father, 
the first original of Lelav, moved to Eretz Yisrael in the 1800s. Rabbi David of Lelav was a student of the, of the Naim Elimelech, the Rabbi Rabbi Meilech, and Rabbi Shemad Lelav at the end of his life moved to Eretz Yisrael. And as he's dying, he died shortly after he arrived, Rabbi Lazar Mendel says to his father, who's going to be my Rebbe? You were my Rebbe until now, and you're dying, and everyone else is back in Europe. There's no one in Eretz Yisrael in the 1840s, whenever it was. So he said, you live in Eretz Yisrael now, the Kaisel can be your Rebbe. So he said, come on, um, I need a Rebbe who can respond, who, when I ask something, he answers. And my Shemad Chavalov said, for some people, they're able to hear when the Kaisel responds as well. But Rabbi Lazar Mendel said, I need a real Rebbe. And after his father died, he goes back to Europe. And he's searching for a Rebbe. And there's a big, big uh, legends about that. And he finds the Karliner. And he becomes a Karliner Chassid. And when the Karliner Rebbe's always send the Chassidim to live in Eretz Yisrael for the next hundred years, they tell them, connect to Lelav. Connect to the Lelav Rebbe's. Karlin and Lelav. And there's a lot of customs that they both keep together. They're like old Yerushalmi Chassidises. And they're very well connected. In fact, when Rabbi Lozer Mendel was on his way back to um, Eretz Yisrael, he passed through Tzanz, and he went to Tish by the Divrei Chaim of Tzanz, and he was enamored. And he was almost swept in. And people heard him murmuring under his breath as he's standing by the Tish of the Divrei Chaim, Duhas Shaina Rebbe, Duhas Shaina Rebbe. You already have a Rebbe, you have the Kalina. So don't, don't get taken in by the Tzanzer at this point. And he comes back. So Lelov and Karlina are connected. So many of them, after the last uh, Karlina Rebbe Rebbeichen and Perlau died, many of them go to Lelov, which caused a big machlaikas afterwards. And should they take this new Yanuka, this new Rav, Rav Baruch Shochat, who's the current Karlina Rebbe, should they make? He was, he was a baby. He was born after his grandfather died, and then he was a baby, and then he was a child, until he actually became a Rebbe. It was quite a bit of time. And some Hasidim were willing to wait. And others went to Lelov. And eventually there was a split later on in Karlin, Pins Karlin, and Karlin Stalin, which Pins Karlin is also an anomaly in Hasidic history, in that when Pins Karlin was founded as a Hasidus, so they had democratic elections amongst the Hasidim who should be the rabbi. And it's one of the only times, and this happened in like the 1980s, this is recent history, it's one of the only times in history of Hasidus that there were democratic elections amongst the Hasidim, not really democratic, because I don't think women got the right to vote, um, but there was somewhat democracy of voting for a Rebbe, and the Rebbe was appointed by an election. Um, the was was not really election, but it was somewhat democratic. There are parallels, there are a few rare cases like that in history of Hasidus, but this was a really something interesting in modern times, so that's also in a branch of Pins Karlin. A lot of uniquenesses, but especially the way they, they built Hasidus in America and the Detroiter Stalin Rebbe and his contribution to creating Hasidus in America and being that one of those first early leaders on is a definitely a contribution that, that created what we have today as American Hasidus. This was Yehudi Gabriel with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at ygebss at gmail.com for questions, comments, sources, tours, and trips to places of Jewish history, you can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher. Follow us on Twitter at JSoundbites, and I hope you enjoyed.